I grew up in a house full of lawyers. Mom, dad, and stepmom were all attorneys by trade and pretty darn good ones at that. And, and that was never more reflective of my experience as a child than this one particular moment in our childhood. You see, we're all together in the family room, just spending time, and my brother comes screaming down the stairs, smoke coming out of his ears in anger, and he, he looks, he goes, Melissa stole my money. And no sooner than two seconds later, Melissa comes jetting down the stairs too. No, I didn't, she said. This has always been mine. And she holds out the two quarters in question. And like any totally normal household that's dealing with a dispute between two elementary school-age kids, my dad kind of looks at the situation and goes, I know how we'll figure this out. A jury trial. <laughs> a jury trial <laughs> with a bunch of six, eight, and 10-year-olds. Over 50 cents. We were so excited. <laughs> so we spent the next 24 hours Getting ready, you see my sister was the defendant, my brother was the plaintiff, they both got to select their representation and attorney from my pool of siblings, and then the rest of us were on the jury and dad was the judge. And so we spent the next 24 hours preparing for this trial. We are examining all the evidence, looking through the questions that might come up, wondering what kind of arguments are gonna be made, and then the next morning, we walk into the courtroom, also known as the kitchen table and we raise our right hand, we take that oath, and we're seated for the trial to begin. And the first thing the judge does is he calls for the plaintiff's attorney to give his opening argument. So my brother comes forward and immediately it becomes clear that he has no interest in making an opening argument. He turns around, smacks the table, points his hand to my sister and goes, why did you steal that money? And before my dad can jump in and talk about how that's a completely impermissible question in a court of law, my little sister just can't help herself and she blurts out, because I needed it. <laughs> because I needed it. The entire room just went completely silent. Everyone just kind of looks at my dad and then back at my sister, then at my dad again and with all eyes on him, he just sort of shrugs and hits his pretend gavel on the table and goes, case closed, I guess. <laughs> I know it's such a silly story. It's such a silly example. I mean, 50 cents at a kitchen table with a fake gavel. But uh, as I was reading through the passage that we're gonna spend some time with this morning, I could not get this story out of my head. And I specifically could not get my sister's words out of my head. Or words, because I needed it. And frankly, I have no idea what she needed it for. I don't know how she came to be in need of it in the first place. All I know is that she expressed a need. In her mind, she had this great need. And I also know that she's not the only person throughout human history who's felt like that. <laughs> who's felt like they had this incredible need. I mean, friends, the... The world we live in is so full of need. It's in so much need. The spiritual and the material needs of this world are just massive. I mean, frankly, in some ways, if I can be honest with you, it's, it's a little bit overwhelming 
for me to think about just how much incredible need there is in this world. I mean, people need hope, they need love, they need comfort, they need community, and they need things like clean water and a, a, a reliable roof over their head, nutritious food, warm and dry clothing, a genuine fair chance at well-being in this world. The need of this place is so massive. You know, in our scriptures, God presents this picture of a, of a sin-free world, and he calls it Eden, and it's this, it's this beautiful garden that's luscious and has so much abundance. There is no such thing as need in this place. But um, in this side of heaven, I feel like it often feels way less like a, a luscious, abundant garden and way more like a dry and lifeless desert where every single place that you look at feels like there is just massive need. Which is why I can't get that ridiculous story of playing a fake trial out of my head. And specifically my sister's words, because I needed it. Not because she actually had this incredible need compared to the real needs that exist in this world. No, but because it, for me, that story and those words by her serve as more than just a gentle reminder to me that the needs in this world, expressed and unexpressed, are just massive. And it causes me to ask this question. The question that I want to wrestle with with you all, alongside you all today. The question is this. How are the people of God supposed to respond to this incredible need in the world? I mean, how are we as people who follow Jesus supposed to respond, called to respond to the incredible spiritual material needs of this world? It's a question that the text that we're going to work our way through this morning attempts to answer through a community of people who give us a really good glimpse into what the answer to that, might, that question might actually be. And you see, we'll open our scripture this morning to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. But that account of this community that will help answer our question, it, it comes on the heels of some pretty incredible events that give us some background and context on what it is that we're dealing with here. You see, before Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, what we see is Jesus is ascended into heaven. But right before he ascends into heaven, he looks at his disciples and he says, I'm going up there, but the Holy Spirit of God is going to come down on you all. It's going to fill you up and it's going to allow you to take my gospel message, the good news of who I am, into the entire world, to the ends of the earth. And just like every time Jesus says something's going to happen, it happens. He ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes down upon them, fills up the disciples, and they begin to speak in many different languages and tongues. And so if you could just imagine it, and there's this group of people standing around speaking in all kinds of different languages and tongues that they wouldn't normally know how to speak. And so what is that going to do? It attracts a crowd. People are intrigued 
They're curious. They're wondering, what in the world is going on there? The scripture says some of them just think they're drunk. But anyways, they keep gathering around thinking, what in the world is happening here? And the crowd starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it's so big that Peter, because of course Peter does this kind of stuff, stands up in the middle of it and thinks, I'm going to address these people. And Peter gives, in Acts chapter 2, one of the most dynamite, mic drop type sermons that you've ever read. He proclaims the gospel. He tells that crowd of people who Jesus is and what he means for their life. And so many of those people, the scripture says, respond to that proclamation, respond to the testimony of who Jesus is. And they repent of their ways and they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's that community, that community that responds to Peter's gospel proclamation. It's that group that we start hearing about in verse 42 of Acts chapter two. You see, because this community is the earliest church. It's the very first community of people who have gathered together in a concerted way and said, we desire to follow Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what the scriptures tell us about them, starting in verse 42. It says, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled at all at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do we see here? What was the early church like? I mean, what they do, what made up who they are? Well, you can see it. What did the early church do? What were they about? In its most pure and simple form, the early church, they did this. I mean, they listened to teachings about Jesus. They they spent time together. They, They ate meals together. They prayed. They marveled at God's work. They had everything in common with each other. They sold their possessions to give to those who had need. They met for worship every single day. They praised God. And they enjoyed the favor of everybody outside the church. And finally, they grew in number every single day. You see, another way of saying that would be they invited other people into their fold constantly. This is how the early church is described. This is what they were about, what they did, how the earliest community of people who were following Jesus together through the power of the Holy Spirit, how they acted, how they moved through their daily life, work, play, home, repeat. This is what their life looked like. And I I guess a a reading through this and a looking at that list, I hope it challenges you in the same way that it challenges me. I hope it challenges you to simply ask the question, Am I a part of that kind of community? And maybe the follow-up question is, 
do I honestly desire to be? Because that sounds like it would take everything. You know, as we begin to wrestle with what it is that we see here in the early church in Acts chapter 2, how they moved about their life, what their community looked like, I think it's actually a really helpful exercise to overlap what we see in Acts chapter 2 with the greatest commandment that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 22. To take a look at how the two go together. You see, because in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 37, uh, a teacher of the law, an expert in the law, a Pharisee approaches Jesus. And he says, Jesus, he says, tell me, what's the greatest commandment? And this is how Jesus replies in 37. It says, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, everything you see here, Hang on, these two commandments, he says. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This text fascinates me. Because if you survey the entire gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you take a look at the ministry of Jesus, what he does, where he goes, etc., you'll see that one thing's primarily true of his entire ministry. He almost never answers a question directly. If you read it, you'll see. He either tells a story or a parable or he gives a question and a response or he just deflects it completely. But he never, almost never gives a concrete, direct answer to a question, especially one that's meant to test or trick him like it says this question was supposed to do in Matthew chapter 22. And yet in this one, he answers it. In Matthew 22, he answers. He just gives a straight up, direct concrete answer. He says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all that you have and all that you are. And love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else, he says, hinges on these two things. Everything else hinges on these two things. And so it, it shouldn't be any surprise to us then that when we look at the account of Acts chapter 2 in the very earliest church, we see just an incredible reflection of Matthew chapter 22 and the greatest commandment that Jesus gives. I mean, Acts chapter 2, this community, is just in a living embodiment of what we see in Matthew chapter 22 and how Jesus is commanding. The people in Acts 2 They're just living out in a really practical way in their daily life. How it is that Jesus says that we are called and commanded and created to live. I mean, if you look at that list that we took a look at in Acts chapter 2, you can see it for yourself. What do the people in Acts chapter 2 do? Well, they loved God. I mean, they listened to teaching about Jesus. They prayed, 
They marveled at God's work. They met for worship every day. They praised God. And also, what did the people of Acts chapter 2 do? Well, they loved other people. They spent time together. They ate meals together. They had everything in common. They sold their possessions to give to those who in need. They enjoyed the favor of outside, those outside the church. They grew in number every single day. They invited more people in. The church in Acts chapter 2, the very earliest church, the church in its most pure and simple form in some ways, is just a reflection of Jesus' greatest commandment in Matthew 22. They, through the power of the Holy Spirit, figured out what it was to just live their normal life in the way that Jesus had commanded. I uh, started our time together this morning asking the question, the question of how do we as the people of God respond to the incredible spiritual and material needs that exist in this world? And here's what I think our scripture gets at. Here's what I think these two passages help us to understand. That the way that we are called to respond to need in this world as the people of God is to one day at a time, together, through the power of the Holy Spirit, follow the commandment that Jesus has given us. Another way of saying it, we're called to respond to the incredible need of this world by being a community that is dedicated to lifting up other people. That is dedicated to lifting up others. If you've been with us over the course of this lift series, you know that we've walked through what we've called the five fingers of faith. Following God where he leads, trusting God's promises, prioritizing God in his kingdom, surrendering to God's passions, and committing to God's vision and power. And so we wrap up our series today, not with a sixth finger. No, we wrap up our series today with what actually comes from these five fingers. What is the result of us actually living out what these five fingers of faith are? These principles and these practices. What happens if we as a community, we as a church actually live that out? Then what happens is we become like that church in Acts 2. We become a community and a church that is dedicated to lifting up other people. That's what comes of it. Maybe you're like me in this and maybe not. And so if not, then just humor me because I'm going to tell you what I'm like in it. Sometimes it might be possible. But let me re-say, sometimes I read passages like this in Acts 2 about this incredible community of people doing the Jesus-following thing with others in the most pure and selfless way. And I think that must have been amazing for them. Not possible today. I'm sure that was really great for them. It must have been an incredible time. But uh, that's not how the world works. Like we've got work and school and emptying the dishwasher and homework and sports. I mean, this is real life. So kind of get real. That's not possible. That's not how it actually works today. And um, I guess I'm here today to tell you that that type of Acts 2 community 
it still absolutely exists. You see, because God is still lifting other people through this type of community, this very day. And I know that for sure because I'm one of those people who's been lifted. In 2016, there was a group of people who had this Acts 2 type of community about them. They prayed together, they spent time together, they ate together, they worshiped together, they sat under the teaching of Jesus, and they gave of everything that they have and everything that they are for the sake of lifting up other people. They did all of this back in 2016 through this initiative that they called Take Root. See, this Acts 2 type of community, they called themselves Christ Church. And the Spirit moved in mighty ways through that Acts 2 community. And one of the practical manifestations of that movement was the creation of the second campus of Christ Church, which is now called the Butterfield Campus. And that Butterfield Campus is where our story of being lifted happens. I've uh, shared with some of you that over the course of the last few years, my wife Allie and I have gone through a really, really difficult time in the loss of multiple pregnancies. You can see one of those instances, the card that the doctor handed us as we left the hospital. A season that has just left us absolutely gutted and broken. We're so devastated. And as we walked through that season, we felt like we were absolutely on the outside looking in. Our friends, our colleagues, our family were all continuing starting or continuing their incredible joy-filled families. And here we were, sitting on the outside, grieving the loss of children that on this side of heaven will never get the chance to meet, and frankly wondering if our family was ever going to be more than the two of us. And in that season, in that despairing, difficult season, God called us to the Butterfield campus of Christ Church to play this serving role there. A role that we still get to play today. And as we arrived there, we had a couple months to get settled. And after a couple months of getting settled, God did something that is just very like him. See, because after a couple months of getting settled, God brought two kids to the Butterfield campus. Two kids that we got to know during vacation Bible school last summer. Two kids who, it turns out, need an adoptive home. And so we spent more and more time with them and it started to feel like God may be actually nudging us to be a part of their family, that that might actually be his calling in our life. But then we stepped back and actually thought about it. I'm thinking to myself, we can't do this. 
I mean, we're not equipped to parent elementary schoolers. We have zero dollars put aside for college. Our house is not set up for this. We can barely keep ourselves alive most days, let alone more people. There's no way we can do it, we, I thought. There has to be someone out there that's better suited for this. And it was in that insecurity, in that thinking, that this Acts 2 type of church just put their arms all the way around us. You see, because a couple weeks later, the kids moved in with us full time. And that Acts 2 church made sure that every single need that we had was met. Toys and clothes showing up on our front door, meals being delivered, people bringing over their extra beds for the kids to have, recommending adoption attorneys and agencies to help us walk through the process, putting us in group chats with other parents who could tell us, yes, they're allowed to have that medicine, and no, they don't need to bathe every single night. (laughs) Prayers and group texts and meal trains and play dates and notes of encouragement, we received lift after lift after lift from this Acts 2 type of community. And because of that, just a couple weeks ago, the four of us got to stand in front of a real-life judge via Zoom court and become a legally binded family forever. God deserves that kind of applause. We got to stand in front of that judge and become a legally binded family forever. See, God lifted us through this Acts 2 community and gave us a family. You see, our family story began in 2016 with every single person who prayed for, invested their time in, or gave to this thing that we called Take Root. Because without it, there is no Butterfield campus. And without the Butterfield campus, we never meet the loves of our lives. And our story continued in 2022. As we wrestled with this insecurity of, is this really what God has for us in this life? And this Acts 2 community put their arms around us every single step of the way. All because... It was this community that was dedicated to lifting up other people by living out Matthew 22 and this idea of loving God and loving one another. A group dedicated to lifting up others. You see, I think that's the thing about being a part of a community dedicated to lifting up others is you have absolutely no clue what kind of ripple effects for good God is going to use it. Because I highly doubt that the people of Acts 2 
Imagine that they were laying the foundation for a global church that would consist of over 2 billion people 2,000 years later. I highly doubt they knew that. And I highly doubt that the people who gave to take root in 2016 knew that their giving was going to give us a family. I highly doubt they knew that. But God did. God always does. And so I guess if I've learned anything about how it is that God works, I've learned that when people rally together as a community like the one we see in Acts 2, a community that is, loves God and loves others and is devoted and dedicated to lifting others up, that we can't even imagine how he will work through it. You may be aware that this past Sunday, as part of our Lift initiative, we had what we called Commitment Sunday. And some of us in this room made commitments and others of us prayerfully will consider making a commitment to this initiative today, this refreshed new movement of how we imagine we can be this Acts 2 type of church. But regardless of commitment, I just want to make a, as clear of a statement as I possibly can. That as we close out this sermon series of our Lift Initiative, that this is not the end. In fact, this is the very beginning because the work of lifting other people actually starts right now. That's what the next two years are for. And it's our team's prayer and our team's hope that over the next two years, we as a community would embody and reflect that Acts 2 church, that we would be a community that lives out this greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22. That we would be a people that pray together, that gather together, that worship together, that sit under the teaching of Jesus, that give of all that we have and all that we are, and not because it's our own willpower, but because Jesus Christ is the firm foundation of our lives. And so as you watch this video that shares a little bit about how we imagine that God may work through us in this next season. I hope you'll You know that Christ Church cares deeply for kids and families. It's so important that young people experience the life-changing love of Jesus and keep growing in their journey with him alongside of peers and mentors. As we've asked the question as a whole church, what does it look like for us as a community to faithfully follow and commit as a church to lifting others? We asked some of our kids that. Adelaide said this, she said for her lifting others and being faithful to Jesus was if she saw someone lonely, she said she could ask if they want to play. Coleman and Gracie, they said that for them lifting others in the name of Jesus was including others. One of our, our fourth graders, she wrote, I am blessed, I am thankful for God, for the Holy Spirit, for Jesus, for the church, for my family, for my gift of writing, art, food, and water. She says I can share these with others by inviting them to church. 
I could write a story for them. I could paint something for them. Or I could share my food and water with the homeless. Friends, our kids are with us. They are committed to walking together with us and following Jesus in this next season. It's all of us. I love church on Sundays, but then when I come to Cal, I feel like more like a connection with the peers around me. It's kind of hard to sit down for long periods of time, but coming here is easier to engage with the Lord. We all kind of like experience God together. We all are kind of going through the same thing with like getting our better connection with God. More friendships are built and people are more comfortable with each other and sharing out with each other. I think it's important for people to hear about this because if they're interested in learning, this is a great place. I think it's a lot of fun. It's a great spot for us to worship the Lord, pray, open our Bibles, sing, and interact with our Lord. I think it's really amazing that Christ Church specifically makes it a point to include the youth group and the kids as much as they include the adults. Our relationship with God matters as much as the adults in the big service. I'm excited to see like all the new hallways and expanding for more people to come. We always want to help everybody feel welcome. The Lyft commitment means to me reaching to students and making disciples and being Jesus to them. I think this is a unique opportunity to prioritize God's kingdom over my own and be a model for that for, for my students. I'll leave you with an anonymous prayer written by a fifth grader. He said, Dear God, thank you for all these blessings and thank you for the ability to share them. Amen. May it be so. Thank you.